Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, you're listening to the Saving You Is Killing Me podcast hosted by me, Andrea Seidel. I'm the author and founder of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. This podcast is for you if you're ready to find a way to struggle well, take back your power, and live life happier while you're navigating loving or losing someone to addiction. I wholeheartedly believe that when you love someone with an addiction, your life gets damaged in some way. Since we can't control someone else's addiction, but we are greatly affected by it, the number one thing you can do is take back your power and focus on you. I believe happiness, joy, and well-being is available to anyone. So the thoughts and perspectives I share here on the show are my own and those of the guests on the show. If you ever hear anything that feels harmful or triggering, I'm pre-apologizing and I'm open to being better and value any feedback and the permission to be human. That said, always take what you love, what feels good and leave the rest The conversations and tools I'll share here will give you everything you need to figure out exactly how to navigate addiction, put yourself first, and how to build resilience for your well-being in a way that feels really, really good. I use these tools to take back the power in my life to build my strength back up and restore peace. And I teach my clients how to create their own version of a life where they can tap into their power and restore their happiness. My goal is for you to listen and leave saying, why is this the only family or spouse support system that doesn't make you feel like you're the problem? And it feels so energizing, empowering, and uplifting thinking that you're not going crazy after all. I am here for you. Finally, please know you are not alone and you are worthy of prioritizing your well-being. So let's jump into the show. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here. I'm the author of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. And I always say, I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, but I'm so glad that you're here, especially today, because I have a wonderful guest on the show and she has such a wealth of knowledge and she's just going to help us and support us in so many ways. And the theme today is kind of this idea of the light at the end of suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was in the muck and also when my addicted loved one got plucked out of my life, I really was suffering. I like was trying in the muck of it. I was trying to help him, fix him, control him, like, you know, everything that I can that you would do when you love someone. And I just, nothing worked. Nothing was working and I was suffering and languishing. And so today is going to be such a great day because we're going to talk all about this, gain some insight around it and hopefully ease some of that suffering for you. So without further ado, I just want to welcome to the show show, the author of Higher Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering, Peg O'Connor is here on the show. Welcome, Peg. Well, thanks, Andrea. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. I, I, I think we've got a wonderful conversation ahead of us, and I really appreciate the work that you do, both as an author and as a podcaster, that you're doing important work to help people make sense of their lives and to flourish, which is a concept that I love talking about, flourishing. Not just surviving, not just getting by, but flourishing. Oh my gosh, yes. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive in and kind of squeeze out all that knowledge in your brain. 
Well, so here's the, the short version. So my name is Peg O'Connor, and I'm a philosopher by training, and I work a lot in moral philosophy, but I also work a lot on addiction, because I think addiction raises many deeply philosophical questions about the meaning of life. And I am a recovering alcoholic of many, many years, which I'm, I'm grateful to say. And a, a lot of the work that I do is geared towards helping people to make sense of and transform their suffering. Because the philosopher Nietzsche says, look, we all suffer. It's part of the human condition. The most intolerable kind of suffering is the suffering that feels meaningless or without any sense. So when we can transform our suffering, we can take what probably would strike us as unwanted opportunities, and they become ways that we can grow or ways that we can even flourish. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's, let's talk about suffering. Like what is it? Why is it that it's so prevalent, especially when you love someone with an addiction or have lost someone to addiction. And I love that you bring that up too. I just want to backtrack on that, that we're not immune to it and in the field. And I always say the field of positive psychology kind of gets a bad rap because it's almost like, it's like, you think that you have to be happy all the time or smiling all the time. But the reality is, is that it's, it's how can we struggle well amongst challenge how can we because we're not immune to it right so I love that you bring that up is that like life isn't supposed to just be all the time sunshine and butterflies and we will be you know there's ups and downs peaks and valleys and so I love that you bring that humanness to it when you talk about it and that you know so inevitably there will be some degree of suffering so then why not suffer well or struggle well through it so thank you for bringing that humanness to it but let's let's talk about suffering a little bit so there are all kinds of suffering there's some suffering that we have absolutely no control over as we say look at the crazy weather patterns we see that there are natural disasters that terrible things can happen because of yes human contributions to our, our natural environment cause that kind of suffering, but you know, hurricanes hit, ice storms hit, mudslides happen. And there's a whole raft of suffering that we have just because we're human beings and we're capable of feeling. We, we feel and we emote and we feel into others and we feel with others. And we suffer because we're also physical beings. So we have pains, we have aches, we grow older, we grow infirm. Perhaps we have been able-bodied and we're no longer able-bodied. Or perhaps we were born with certain kinds of conditions that society makes limit us in certain kinds of ways. And then there's the self-inflicted suffering that isn't necessarily separate from all these other forms of suffering. But there are certain forms of suffering in which some of us, and I'll, and I'll speak as a recovering alcoholic here, that much of my suffering was on the one hand self-induced, but on the other hand, a consequence of the times, a consequence of my upbringing, a consequence of our environment. Uh, you know, I'm in the U.S. and you're in Canada. Um, that there are various kinds of social expectations that get layered on people and some of us just can't or won't meet them but we think that we should and so when we get so occupied with trying to meet standards that don't fit us or that we don't believe in and when we keep telling ourselves that we should be doing it we set ourselves up for failure and failure is one kind of suffering so there's all these different kinds of suffering and the question is how do we differentiate between them and and how do we come to understand what's in our control and what's not in our control, because we will be absolutely miserable if we rail against things that happen to us, but they happen to everyone, you know? So why should we think that any one of us should be immune to suffering? So it's, it's like you said, you know, the positive psychology, it seems like the happiness industry is cranking up expectations that we should be happy all the time. And if we're not, well, there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with us. There's plenty wrong with the world. And maybe some of our attitudes need adjustment, but there's nothing wrong with us. 
Oh, yes. You raised so many amazing things. And obviously, yeah, there's some circumstances that are just out of our control, right? And uh, within the field of positive psychology, they do look at that, like there's genetics and then there's circumstances, but then there's also those intentional behaviors or that, and I love that you bring that up. It's almost like this idea of, you know, the pressure that we put on ourselves, that self-inflicted suffering, that's what we have control over. So I love that you bring up this piece about control, because I know that one of the, the biggest struggles of loving someone with an addiction is that we are trying to influence or control or like, you know, or help them with their addiction. Or I know in my circumstance, I was just like doing everything that I could. Um, and I felt like, you know, I would create boundaries that were more about him boundaries for him. And, and, but really I, I learned through the process that, you know, what zero control, I, you have no control over another human being. And that's one of the tenants, right? The, the three C's of addiction, you didn't cause it, can't control it. You can't cure it. And so this idea of control is so profound. And I think that you raise such a good point is that when we feel like we're trying to control, or we think that we're trying to control someone else and then disappointed that we can't that's where the suffering really truly comes in and so what I love that you bring up is this idea that yeah there's um there's things that we don't have control over in our lives and then there's suffering circumstances that we don't have control but then let's look into those things that those self-inflicted suffering so if we can delve into that I think that that might help us and the listeners and everyone because that's actually what we can have in influence on that's what we can we can manage we can work with we can mm-hmm. make better not getting rid of suffering altogether because it's impossible but yeah can you speak to that a little bit while I let my dog out <laughs> oh yes definitely go let your dog out so oftentimes we suffer the most when we try to control what's beyond our zone of control and there's an ancient philosopher Epictetus who reminds us that So much is out of our control, but what's never out of control are our attitudes and our beliefs and our opinions. And so we have some control over our responses to things. But oftentimes when we suffer in these kind of self-inflicted ways, it's because we have expectations of ourselves or others and that we believe they should be met. And sometimes we engage in hoping in a certain way. And And hope is wonderful. It's one of the things that we human beings can do. But hoping can be done, uh, what's the way to put this? Poorly. Hoping can be done in a way that causes a lot of suffering. So there's a a philosopher, uh, Victoria McGear, who makes a distinction between willful hoping and wishful hoping. So wishful hoping is when you really wish, 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 you want something to happen and you kind of expect it to happen. Oh, poof, then a miracle happened. And then you get exactly what you want. There's a kind of um, lack of agency in making what you want come to pass. Willful hope, on the other hand, is you are going to try to manufacture by hook hook or crook, you're going to try to manufacture reality so it looks exactly like what you want it to look like. So too much agency trying to force something, not enough agency. So what does it mean to hope well, for example? When you hope well, your expectations and your sense of what you can control are pretty darn clear to you and you don't kind of get beyond them in a kind of way. And so, you know, I think Buddhists are very right when they talk about the the origin of suffering is a kind of grasping. And many of us want for other people to change. Many of us want for the world to be certain ways. And so our suffering is completely a matter of our having hopes or expectations that can't possibly be met. And it creates this very vicious cycle then of resentment. And there's perhaps nothing more toxic than resentment. And if you are full of resentment, you are suffering in a very deep, problematic, troubling kind of way because you can lose yourself in your resentment. All you see are the wrongs or the slights or the grievances and those become the framework with which you encounter the world and they limit the kind of sense and meaning you can make. So 
so many nuggets of wisdom. You're speaking my language. I, I love this concept and I did do a whole podcast on hope and who hope is for like hope is actually for you, not hope on someone else, not casting hope. Like I hope that they get sober or I hope they seek recovery. It's like hope is for a wish for a better future for yourself. And I love that you bring up this whole element of agency and what we have influence on, like the, the capacity to influence our own life and, and recognizing that who are we casting that on? And you put it in such a brilliant way. I love this willful and wishful, right? It's almost like, it's like your wishful thinking is like, is this idea that hope is, it's poor hope. So if we can hope well, I love the way you put this almost like struggle well, is like hoping well is recognizing like is hope is for a better future for ourselves is what I'm hearing you say. And that this idea is that we have that capacity to influence um, di our direction, our action in our own life, but for us, not for anyone else around mm -hmm. us. Yeah, I think that's right. And so when all you do is wish, I wish for this, I wish for that, I wish this person would change. Your wish is kind of like a beautiful ornamental knob that spins but doesn't do anything. So that wishing has to become willingness to do something. When you become willing to do something, then you're putting yourself in the frame in an appropriate kind of way. But you also have to be careful not to go far too far over to that other side about, well, I'm just going to make reality, I'm going to bend reality to my will. You can't bend reality and you're going to be miserable if you try. Mm. So I do love that you bring up this idea of expectations. Can we speak to that? Because I know expectations have caused a lot of suffering in my life. And I, when, you know, when you expect something of someone else, or when you, you know, expect, you know, you want your career to go in one direction and it doesn't, and then you just feel disappointed and let down. Um, so can we speak to this idea of expectations? Oh, I, I think it, it's really important. What are they saying? A, A, A. An expectation is a future resentment. It, and, and there's something very right in that. But I also want to say, I think there are legitimate expectations. And I think they're they're near enemies at times. So, so that's the problem when you can't differentiate what's a legitimate expectation from what's an illegitimate expectation. So if I make a promise to you, Andrea, you have a legitimate expectation that I should meet the promise. But if you have an expectation that someone else should completely change their career for you or, you know, undergo some kind of seismic change in their life, that's an illegitimate expectation. And I think the trick is learning the difference between the two and being able to identify it. And none of us gets it right all of the time. I mean, it's definitely trial and error, but sometimes the errors sting so much that we carry that with us. Hmm. Know it. That is so good. And I love this idea that I'm really hearing this polarity with everything that you're talking about. So when we talk about control, for example, it's like recognizing what it is we have control over and what we don't have control on that. Just that awareness alone is really key to whether or not we're going to, we're going to move into a place of suffering and turmoil. And then also with this hope well, or ill hope, it's almost like recognizing, you know, what type of hope that we're engaging in so to speak it's like it's like and then that will help us too with this idea of suffering or you know not suffering as much and then expectations same thing it's like is it legitimate or is it illegitimate <laughs> so mm -hmm. is it there's that dichotomy right it's like is that the word it's like there's that polarity and in and, and just that self-awareness piece alone um really does help and enhance our ability to not suffer as much I think that's right. It, I think it, it's dangerous, though, because expectations are always context dependent in the broadest sense, but even more so in a particular sense with respect to individuals. So, you know, we can talk about expectations in, say, a professional relationship. If I am the boss, I can have legitimate expectations of you. They should be clearly you know, enumerated. So we know we're on the same page. It gets more difficult though. I think in intimate relationships to have shared expectations that are agreed upon because so much is left unspoken. 
And it's what's unspoken oftentimes that's the source of most of the turmoil or the source of perhaps the feeling hurt or angered or grieved when those expectations aren't met. It's hard to meet an expectation. It's hard for me to meet your expectation if I don't know you have it. Particularly if, you know, you said, oh, no, no, that's fine. You know, oh, whatever you want is fine. Um, well, then to come back and say, well, you're disappointed in me. It's, I didn't have enough information. So, you know, that gets us into the heart of these social dynamics that are so important to our individual identities. So to think about addiction in the context of a relationship with a loved one, I mean, one of the biggest challenges there is a fundamental lack of clarity and perhaps a lack of trust, all of which are perhaps very well justified, you know, that lack of trust. Oh, gosh, yes. And the listeners are all shaking their head, probably going, yes, yes, yes. Um, well, and I think it's hard to for, for people sort of on, on all sides of the relationships of, of addiction to figure out what what gets to count as a legitimate expectation because we don't trust ourselves so much. So I oftentimes talk about in, in addiction, one of the first things that we who struggle lose is our ability to trust ourselves because we have made promises to loved ones. We have said, Oh, we won't do that. We have um, made commitments to cut down or, you know, we can look behind oftentimes and we break promises to ourselves. Well, I really want to go for that job. I really want to push myself. And then we don't. And so, you know, from the addicted side, we come in not trusting ourselves or thinking that we're fundamentally untrustworthy. And then those who are in relationships with us, whether it be an intimate partner relationship, parent-child relationship, or coworker, sort of, we stop to trust the person struggling with addiction, but people who love or work with addicted ones, I think they start to lose trust in themselves in a kind of way. And the question is, how do you get that self-trust back? It's easily lost. And I think it's very difficult to achieve again. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, yes. So what's coming up for me and what I'm hearing you say is this idea of, it's so easy not to trust the addicted loved one. You know, they promise, they make empty promises, this and that, right? And it goes on this cycle. Right. Here's the big list of promises that you, I'm, I'm making my hands like I got a, bit of, big, yeah. got a big scroll in my hand. I mean, here's the list and you can list them and I can list them too. So yeah, yeah. there's that big list. There's a big list of the things and, and and you're right. Some of it will be um, legitimate expectations. Like, you know, I expect to not be yelled at and I expect to not have you yell at my kids and chase them up the stairs. Like there's like legitimate expectations. And, um, and so what I'm hearing you say is that, um, so we start to lose trust in the addicted loved one in our lives, which is very common, yep. and, you know, and, and typical. However, what I'm hearing you say is you also start to lose trust in yourself. And this is yes. so true because what happens is, is I started to, I would set boundaries and then I'd be upset with myself because I would let that boundary go as like, I'd let them back into the house or, you know, after I'd say, this is the last time if, he, if this things don't get better by October, then, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, December would roll around and then like it kept pushing out. And so I was letting myself down. I couldn't trust myself anymore. And I kept feeling like I was putting his needs above my own and, and, you know, lacking in, in like so many ways that we go down this downward spiral, right. not to point blame yeah. and not to make anyone feel bad. And, and, and giving myself so much compassion around that because navigating loving someone with an addiction is not easy. And I'm sending out that self-compassion, yes, that compassion. Absolutely. absolutely. Not easy. But the bottom line is, yeah, you start to lose that like that self-worth or self-trust. And, and so what I'm hearing you say is that, that just that acknowledgement is, is key because then, okay, now let's start picking up the pieces or how can I start to build myself back up? How can I regain my power? How can I start trusting in myself again? And so let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think that's really hard to do. And the only thing I will say is it takes a while to build back that self-trust. And I think it's always going to start with small kinds of successes because one of the, the cruel ironies of self-trust is that you lose the ability to say, 
well, that was a little victory, or that was a win, or that's something I should feel good about, that you get really good at minimizing and, and denying when it is you make some kind of, of progress. And so I think it always has to start small with the, you know, well, if, if my loved one just starts yelling at me, I'm not going to engage. I'm just going to walk away or I'm just going to just sit there quietly and, and not say anything. That may be a huge achievement if in the past you've engaged or you've just gotten so hurt in a kind of way. And I don't have good answers for what it means to build back self-trust because I, I think that is something, you know, I, I'll speak from my own experience. I still struggle with, and I've been, you know, sober for 35 years because it turns out when I think I've got my self-trust back, I can do something. And I've got those old tapes in my head playing my head like, oh, God, you're such a screw up. Or who would be so stupid as to do that? I mean, so that kind of that that second guessing, which is the hallmark, I think, of people who've lost self-trust. Um, and it's hard, too, in, a, in an intimate relationship in particular, because our relationships make us be who we are, that, you know, we are fundamental, fundamentally relational creatures. And so if we are in relations with people who are struggling or who aren't good for us and we know it, but still we are bound by ties of love and loyalty, and we know that we will lose part of our identity if we lose our relationship with them. But I think the more, the profound part is you can lose yourself in those relationships. And you can, by staying in them, lose yourself even more. And it's very hard to recover yourself. Because mm. you might not know who you are anymore. So true. And the way you said it to recover, and I, I always talk about recovering is about getting something back. So, um, cause I used to resist like recovery. Why do I need recovery? You know? And so the idea is to recover, looking at recovery from the perspective of recovering who you are, you said so many amazing things there. And I know that like this whole idea of um, getting yourself back and building that trust with yourself. I love how you started off by saying it starts with small little tiny things. And like whether, you know, you start, like you said, with being like gray stoning and just like, uh-huh, like instead of being reactive, maybe that's a, maybe that's progress for you. Maybe even just getting out of bed and making your bed and like deciding to like face the day might be like a baby step to Huge. build trust in yourself. Huge. I know, yes. I know for me, it was all about um, exploring what my values were, exploring back to what is it that Andrea is needing? What am I needing, feeling, wanting? Like, And then just by doing that, I started to trust that I had my own back. And then practicing self-compassion. And in our in the SYKM community, we talk all about self-compassion, self-care as a form of regaining your power. And the idea is, is that slowly doing things for you, having your own back and taking good care of yourself is a way of building that self-trust. You start to realize, hey, you know, I'm worthy or I have the right to this. I have the right to, you know, and, and it's kind of like tapping into your rights is another strategy and just figuring out again, you know, what is it that's important to you? What is it that you're needing? And, and that was one way I really did reconnect to, um, for me, reconnect to build, build, believing in myself and trusting mm -hmm. in myself again. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and oftentimes we can't do that for ourselves. So we have to kind of imagine what ifs, you know. So what if my best friend came to me and explained that her situation was identical to mine? I would have so much compassion for her. I would wish her well. I, you know, I would tell her all these supportive kinds of things. But yet I can't say that to myself, right? That's that's the hardest thing, I think, for, for many people to say is, I deserve these things just because I'm a human. This is the moral philosopher in me coming out. Yeah. Just because I'm a human being, I am worthy of respect from others. I should be autonomous. I have a kind of innate dignity that has suffered. And it is part of what it means to be human to, to improve, to become a better person, to, to flourish in all these kinds of ways. But we can do that for other people's but when it comes to ourselves, we're like, we always have that yeah, but, you know, yeah, but, yeah, but, 
whether our situation is worse or we're worse, I mean, the yeah, but response is is absolutely devastating. So stifling that little response is a good one. How to clamp down on that one. And, and, and as I said, I still struggle with this. Like, oh yeah, I'm so good at all these parts of my life. Yeah, but. Mm. Yeah, but. I think that's very common and that's that inner critic, right? And, 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 and it's so true that element of self-compassion is one of the ways to transform suffering. And I so enjoy what you're saying, because the reality is, is that that voice, that, that inner critic or that voice that's saying, yeah, but, or the one that's like kind of breaking us down and making us lose trust in ourselves and our self-worth is that very voice is the one that is trying to keep us safe. And so we want to honor what it's saying, but at the same token and hear it. But then also, I always say, I love the idea of talking back to it with the inner nurturer. Like it's like having another voice. It's like, yeah, Andrea, like, and like just talking in a way that you would talk to your, your beloved child or, you know, how your mom would talk to you, like turning that same kindness back onto mm-hmm. yourself. And then, and then also connecting with the idea that you also talk about that common humanity. We love Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion and that she talks about there's that common humanity and the main piece of the puzzle is this mindfulness and being aware of that inner voice that maybe is that inner critic and then transforming it into more of an inner nurture being on our own team and I love that you bring that up because yes we sometimes we make our own suffering it's like Andrea how could you be so stupid it's like how are you staying in this relationship if there was a fly on the wall watching how this person was treating you you would like like it'd be unbelievable like the things that you are putting up with Andrew. Like I was so mean to myself at the same token, but that was the voice that was trying to keep me safe. Right. But it was also tearing me down in the process. Exactly. Right. And the thing is that inner critic is judge, jury, and executioner. There's no escaping it. I mean, you've got to attend, befriend, and sur- you know, the term surrender kind of drives me mad. I, I don't like that term. I I like to think of it in terms of renunciation, to renounce. When you renounce something, you say, I no longer believe this. I no longer subscribe to this view or way of being in the world. So, and it's to renounce. I love that. Yeah, to renounce is to say, I'm not going to, I don't identify with those things anymore. I don't want to be those ways anymore. And the renunciation also is forward looking to say, and I'm not going to be those ways. I'm going to be these different ways. I'm going to okay, be this is gold. Person, right? So this this kind of renunciation, but until you attend and befriend that critic, you can't renounce it because that inner critic has the the big huge bullhorn. You know, it's just blasting at you all the time. It's the megaphone. But yeah. when you renounce it, you acknowledge it, you disabuse, and then you move to standing in a new different relationship with yourself because you're doing different kinds of things. Oh, so, okay. We got to unpack that because it's so good. And I too struggled with that word surrender because it's kind of like sitting back and just letting everything happen. So this attend and befriend, I love this because it basically, if someone is like an emotion is yelling at us and trying to catch the inner critics, trying to catch our attention is going to keep getting louder if we ignore it. So I love this idea of, yes, we're going to attend to it. We're going to give it acknowledgement. We're going to befriend it, give it love, support, understanding, compassion, and then moving to this place instead of surrendering to it. I love the way you put it. Renounce. It's like, like basically, it's almost like I always say this idea of declaration. It's like, I no longer yeah. will tolerate this, or I no longer will, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blanks. And so it really is about acknowledgement and then stepping into your power And kind of like, and I always have this idea of like, make a declaration, like I am worthy of prioritizing my well-being. I will safeguard my mental well-being or my mental health, you know, Mm -hmm. in this way, in this way, you know, so it's, can we unpack this idea of renounce a little bit more? Sure. So just, I want to refine a little bit more, like why I don't like surrender, because like you said, surrender seems kind of passive, like, oh, okay, sit back. But surrendering is also something that happens. So in the criminal justice system in the United States, if you're arrested for certain crimes, you have to surrender to the police. You've got to surrender your passport. You may need to surrender various kinds of capital so you don't flee or go off to the Bahamas and then have to get 
um, <laughs> extradited, but I digress. Um, so surrendering has all these very negative connotations. You surrender, you wave the white flag, you say, I give up. Renouncing is far more, it's like you said, it's more of a declaration. It is an active commitment. It is a willingness to say, not that I don't want to be these ways anymore. Not only am I not, I don't want to be these ways. I'm not going to be these ways anymore. And I'm going to find new ways of being in the world, or I'm going to find different ways to identify. I'm going to find different kinds of priorities. I'm going to find different kinds of commitments that make me feel like the person that I want to be. You know, so I renounce being, you know, the 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 moon to someone else's sun. I I renounce my tendency to just stand back and say, oh, whatever you want. I renounce that and instead I want to go in this direction. I have these goals and expectations. And when you renounce, I think you that's the point, I think, at which you find that right kind of way to hope because that hoping is coupled with the willingness to act understanding that I can't control everything but there are some things that I can control and what I can control I ought to control in responsible proactive circumspect kinds of ways and not just react all the time and then hope everything goes away or try to make everything go away oh so good. I love that we got onto this topic because that is so empowering and that just feels so much better. And it is a way of transforming suffering. It's like going almost from feeling like a victim to a victor. Like I am writing the this chapter of my life now. It's like mm-hmm. I renounce, like I am renouncing, like, and I love that you bring this. I'm not going to do this anymore. And here's what I'm going to do. It's almost like moving into action. And it just yep. is, is so empowering and I love this idea and this so it's kind of like a really active part of self-compassion and it will build your self-trust in as well oh mm-hmm. my god yeah I think so I think so the philosopher Montaigne was a French philosopher in the 1600s and he had this wonderful expression about knowing how to belong to yourself and and I think when we belong to the expectations of others when we belong to the opinions of others and we hold them as our own, when we think that everyone else knows more about us than we do, then we, again, coming back to that theme of losing yourself, we've, we've lost ourselves. So to learn how to come to belong to yourself is, is a lifelong process, in part because yourself is always changing. That's part of what it means to be human is that we're not static beings because we're relational, we're, we're changing, we're in different relationships, we're in different contexts. And so instead of thinking about, you know, recovering a self as if a self is a contained, discrete object, we know how to self, we're always selving, but we're doing it in ways that are respectful of what's not in our control and what's in our control and is respectful of all the kind of interactions we have with other people, with the world in general, with, you know, the cosmos, whatever kind of spiritual beliefs you may have. And how darn cool is that? So when you think about all the different ways that we are in relationships with others and those relationships help us to become who we are, I think it then helps to keep those relationships that aren't good for us kind of right-sized, or we're better able to have a right view of them, a right understanding of them. And when we come to see that, you know what, I thought that relationship was the be-all and end-all for me, and with a little bit of distance, with a little bit of change, I think, oh, no, oh, no, definitely no. You know, again, here's that kind of renouncing of, I no longer pin my self-worth on being in this relationship with this person or with these people or with, you know, being favorably regarded by those people. I mean, to be able to say, you know, I genuinely only care about the opinions of some who really matter to me, who get me, who love me, who understand me, who make me a better person. And I don't care what the rest of the other people think. There's nothing more liberating than that. So good. 
I love this whole idea of renouncing. And then the other thing that you bring up too is this piece of acceptance. Although when you're in the muck of it, I remember like, I was like, there cannot, and I even have a client that's been texting me and, and I feel so devastated for him. He's lost his addicted fiance and he's struggling and, um, you know, she has passed on and he is just, Mm -hmm. you know, in such a dark place and my heart just aches for him. And so when he's in that, he's like, I can't, I'm having trouble seeing, I'm usually good at seeing the sunny side of things and the blessings. And, and he goes, but I have trouble seeing what's good in this. And so when you're in that, it's so hard, like it's so hard and it's hard to see what good could possibly come out of that. And so I think you're right. I think there's like this idea of, yes, there is some idea of refocusing on acceptance and moving forward and seeing, you know, the the goodness of what could possibly come out of something so traumatic and terrible. Um, this idea of acceptance, but when you're in that really challenging time, how do you transform suffering there? I, I think I think that's a great question. And um, so my mom just died um, a couple months ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. And for me, it is a devastating loss. I loved her more than anything, and I know that I'll be okay, and that I am okay even though I can't really even describe what that okayness is, you know, that I'm getting up, that I'm meeting my obligations, I'm teaching, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. I know that I'm okay and that I will be okay, but right now I can't even quite envision what that looks like because the world has changed. And so for your client, his world has changed. He has changed because he's lost a piece of himself. He's lost a part of himself that, you know, these people with whom we are in these loving relationships, they are part of us. So we have lost a part of ourself. And, you know, maybe it does have something to do with trust, but knowing that, you know, I can't make any big, huge, great, grand metaphysical meaning out of the death of a loved one. I can't. But what I can make meaning out of is what am I doing every day? And I think, you know, that, that, that question. So the poet Rilke wrote um, in letters to a young poet, you know, that there are all these questions, but the point is to live the questions and perhaps you will someday without knowing it, live the answers. And so I think that's the case for many of us that we are living the answers in very small kinds of ways. And it's only when we're able to look back a little bit to say, I, I have, I have moved somewhere. I have changed some. I'm adapting to this new world because it is different. But I know somehow I can do it because I have a loving family, because I have a supportive network. You know, but that I, I think to to feel as if you are entirely alone in the world is one of the most devastating things. And so, you know, for example, that your client has you. He has a touchstone. He has something, you know, someone that he can reach out and connect with. And those connections are what what keep us keep us on our feet, even or they help us to get back on our feet, even if we've been knocked flat on our asses. So for me, I know I won't always nail the landing for a 10. I might fall flat on my ass, but I know somehow I'll get up because. It's not my great inner fortitude or anything like that, but it's that I've constructed my life where I have people who will always help me get up and they're helping me now. And then I come on podcasts like this and it helps me to keep getting up. Mm, oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. And, and I know that there's a lot of people really struggling. And so um, instead of just, you know, seeing, oh, there's a higher order in this. It's like, I love your, your, your meaning making might just be like, day to day. Right. And just that inner knowing that you'll be okay. We'll be okay. Um, and then also to reach out to others and also to connect with others and to know you're not alone through what you're going through and through everything. And, um, and then, yeah, just taking it, like, I love your suggestion is just taking it day by day and just in your suggestion, even hour by hour, hour, I mean, in terms of the worst, 
you know, throes of melancholia. I mean, particularly around the holidays, these are hard times, you know? So it may not be day by day. It may be a much smaller increment of time. That's the victory. Yeah. Mini victories. And, and like our example, it's like maybe getting out of bed. I know maybe it's just getting out of the bed and making the bed, not getting back into it is like a a celebration of victory. And then um, I know that also moving into a place of uh, micro moments of joy, um, like, or even if you have to just bring yourself into the present moment, I call these like mental health first aid things. It's like, I remember I used to have to walk down the road. I'd have to be like tree, car, road, pebble. Right bring myself into the present moment so my brain wouldn't go off on um and that helped ease my suffering in those moments and just finding things like in my present moment that just I felt so grateful for just like even if I had to be in awe looking at the clouds in the sky those yep. micro moments really helped ease the suffering for me and helped get me come out of my brain and oh I know I music music does it for music. me and not an I you know Hi, culture, classical music, but I have been putting disco on. Usually, you know, I work out to disco or something like that. And I'm sorry, but it just makes me smile. It's it's bits of joy. And, you know, to feel at home in my body, realizing, you know, hey, I'm kind of grooving with this. And it's just this, it's this little respite, but it is also that there's that moment of joy, which shows that joy is still possible, that I can still feel it. And maybe I'm having a hard time generating it on my joy because I'm an optimist by nature. I am a sunny side person. I am just that person. And I've been struggling to do that. So it's been feeling really alienating to me. But to be reminded that I can find joy even in or especially in ABBA or Donna Summer or something (laughs) like that. I mean, with, I mean, I tease myself, I teach at a Lutheran college where there's choral music all the time. And there is something incredible when you hear what happens when voices sing together. It's so much greater than the sum of its parts that, you know, it really can be a profound spiritual experience that kind of gets you outside of your own embattled, grieving, melancholic self. And even for a time, you, you're, you're continuous with it. You, you touch something that's bigger. I mean, I mean, that's the power of chanting, for example. Why, why do so many different religions have chanting practices? Because it's a way to connect with others through something that is shared and that is so much greater than individuals just doing it alone. Oh, yes, yeah, so true. And, and there's a whole community aspect there and connection to others. And then mm-hmm. um, I know for me too, not only dancing and music is so profound and helpful to bring you kind of to ease and transform that suffering, but getting out into nature and just for me, just sitting on the side of a hill. And even if in that moment, you know, I'm just noticing everything around me, maybe having some moments of tears, but then also moments of just awe. And um, those sometimes it's just tapping in to those micro moments. I did have a client as well that her daughter passed away of a drug overdose and it was so hard for her, Mm. obviously. And um, she felt guilty for being happy and having moments of joy. She's like, I should be sad. But then she realized that she needed to also have, you know, and then she would have fun memories of her daughter and she would laugh and enjoy it. And then, and then move into sadness again. Right. And, and that, you know, tears of joy, tears of laughter and tears of grief are all right there together and and can happen in a minute. I mean, because that, that's the other place where, I love laughing and and I have the good fortune to have very funny friends and funny family members and to be able to laugh again, that sharing something with someone else. So, I mean, I guess maybe the common denominator here is that we are sharing, whether it's we're sharing a beautiful blue sky with other people or our dogs or, you know, whatever else might be in the universe. And again, it comes back to that, that sharing is connecting is not being alone. Yes. Oh my gosh. You've raised so many amazing 
uh, concepts and ideas around transforming suffering and seeing the light in suffering and, you know, this whole concept of hoping well and um, recognizing what we do have control in and taking action on those building self-trust and really managing our expectations, um, but also honoring our boundaries and our, our what, what our rights are. And then almost that whole idea of renouncing and creating a whole um, declaration of what you will and will not do anymore, or just like really this idea of empowering yourself and moving into a place of taking action for you. Um, you talk all about... Um, this whole idea of hoping well, I love that, moving into con uh, control of what we have control over. And this concept of it's going to be okay, like believing in ourself and our resources and the people around us reaching out. And I, there are so many more nuggets of wisdom there. But if there was one more thing to help those who are listening transform suffering, what would it be? That I hope people would be willing to embrace possibilities and maybes and to believe that it's a possibility that things will get better. Maybe things will get better. And that's all faith is, is a willingness to believe in possibility and to live on maybes. And it turns out that our belief that something is possible can help to bring that about. And so faith can make facts. So faith doesn't need to be in any deity. It doesn't need to be in something in particular. It's just a willingness to act when the results aren't certified in advance, which results never are certified in advance. But are you willing to act? And, and I think that taps into the self-trust. You know, am I willing to believe that I can be a trustworthy person? Well, if I believe that I am, I may start to act from that belief and I do become that kind of person. So I guess I would tell people to have a little faith in that sense of living on possibilities and maybes. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. Peggy, Peg, I called you Peggy. Like you're my No, that's, a, that's fine. My family calls me Peggy. So I go ahead, like Andrew. We're family now. Yes, I feel like you're my best friend already. Um, I cannot thank you enough, Peg, for being here on the show and for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience with the world. And again, you are the author of Higher and Friendly Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Peg O'Connor, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so much for having me and for all that you're doing. And of thank course, you. I'll put all of your show, all the links in the show notes for your book and for your website and everything, because I know people are going to want to get a hold of you and uh, obviously purchase your book and support you and uh, just be in your world. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad to be in your world. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com, where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And, of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.